The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, me? No, the, the people behind Oh, you. the listeners. Okay, yeah. yes. All right. Uh, yes. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. <laughs> I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. <laughs> my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. For the purposes of this particular podcast, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. Yeah. It's the coolest name, man. And uh, yeah, this is the podcast where you you write in and we read your emails and we talk about whatever you want us to talk about in your emails. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We also have a P.O. box if you're super interested in that. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Our P.O. box is uh, Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. Uh, so you can ask us questions. You can uh, take us a task for things we said on our podcast. We disagree with the review we gave, for example. Um, anything at all, really. We're open books. Whitney, we mm. don't like to dilly dally at the front of these. We want to give us people as, as much time as we possibly can, especially mm. since we like to talk. Uh, tell us about our first email. <laughs> Certainly, William. Yes. Uh, this is a letter from Starship. Hello, Starship. Ooh, great uh, name. Dear sirs, uh, first of all, the only thing I have to say about the 1993 Three Musketeers movie. Oh which we reviewed recently, uh, is Oliver Platt must have been exhausted from carrying the movie on his back. <laughs> Oliver Platt yeah. is is the uh, only actor who's really bringing like, a lot of verve and energy to that movie. I, I'll correct you there, Tim Curry. And Tim Curry. Tim Curry's well. a good yeah. villain in that movie. But Oliver Platt is... Uh, Oliver Platt was not a particularly well-known character actor when The Three Musketeers came out. He'd been in stuff. People, mm-hmm. people liked and respected him. But Three Musketeers was a lot of people's introduction to Oliver Platt. And he had Jack Sparrow energy like 15 years before Jack Sparrow was a thing. Yeah, and he was like the Pirate King as well. Yeah. They reveal a, a little twist at the end. Yeah, he's, he's um, absolutely delightful, and yeah, he totally carries that film. Uh, Starship goes on. Uh, and now for my question. I know you guys get a lot of what's your favorite movie questions in your awesome podcast, The Iron List, covers this as well. Thank you. But I'm curious about what your favorite episodes of TV are. Oh, interesting. Not your favorite shows, but specific episodes. Are there any episodes of any show that really stick in your mind as the best of what television has to offer from any show at any time? Right. I love movies, but when push comes to shove, I'd like I'll I'm say I'm more of a TV fan. I love getting deep into characters episode after episode and getting to know the worlds that get built up around them. Thanks for all your hard work. I love love your podcast. Sincerely, Starship. Uh that's a great question, and it's interesting because I feel like this is a question that has kind of evolved over time. For many decades, the typical television episode, whether it was a serialized television series or not, uh, was relatively standalone. Mm. And you could just come in, watch that one episode, mm. and then back out. I hate that we have to repeatedly explain this. But that, because true. it wasn't so long ago that TV did this. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't until like maybe the mid-2000s that TV started making a shift in that... In, 
uh, larger well, arcs in earnest. There were there were definitely mm. some progenitors of that, but in the 2000s, it became very, very popular. Yeah, thanks to stuff it, like Lost or 24 mm. um, or, or The Sopranos or various other prestige uh, programming. Mm. Uh, and as a result, focusing on an individual episode as a unique highlight is less common now, unless yeah. that episode really, really stands out. There's a really great episode of Breaking Bad, which kind of takes a break from the entire, uh, you know, serialized narrative. Mm -hmm. And it's entirely about uh, Walter, and I think Jesse is his name, and, you know, they're making meth. Is, it, and is they're... the Aaron Paul character? Aaron Paul, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, um, who's the who's the actor? Uh, Brian Cranston and Aaron yeah. Paul, just for the sake, if you don't know the names, the characters. Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul, they're making meth. That's what their characters are doing. And uh, there's one episode where they become obsessed with finding a fly in their la in their meth lab and oh, killing okay. it, so it won't <laughs> contaminate everything that they've done. So it's a big fly hunt, and it was directed by Ryan Johnson. And that's a really good standalone episode of that because it kind of lifts out of the rest of the show. Yeah, and you yeah. can kind of just watch that episode. So that's uh, a, that's a good one. Mm. That's a recent one. It's a relatively well known one. Um, I'm trying to think of a few others that uh, well, maybe are less common. One one that uh, th this one's mentioned a lot uh, by like TV historians, but uh, when I was a kid, I would watch reruns of I Love Lucy all the time on TV. Oh, yeah. And uh, I liked I Love Lucy, even as a little kid, but it wasn't until I got together with like a big group of friends and we started sort of looking at it as an art that we got to really appreciate just how sublimely timed out I Love Lucy is yeah. and what great comedians, just all of the actors are. Yeah. It's it's not just Lucille Ball, it's not just Desi, it's also uh, William Frawley and Vivian Vance. That's a great ensemble. They yeah. were brilliant comedians. The yeah, all, all four of them. And, yeah. and the famous episode where they get a job in the chocolate factory and the chocolates come too fast and they have to start putting them in their mouth. It's, it's a cliche a now. It is it is brilliant. Like you're not laughing because you're surprised at what happens. Mm -hmm. You're laughing at how perfectly it happens. It's actually stunning when you watch old episodes of I Love Lucy. Just how many episodes? I mean, it took them a little bit to find their footing, but mm. just how many episodes are comic genius? There's a really really good one I recommend called Lucy Does a TV Commercial. Is this the Vitamina Vegemin? Vitamina Vegemin, where yeah. uh, basically she's 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 offered a gig on a television to promote a new health drink. It's like a serum. It's like a serum, yeah. and the whole thing is she's supposed to take a drink of it and Which give it's, a little it's give a, a little a spiel. Spoonful. She has to take a spoonful. Take a spoonful of this thing. Yeah. It gives a little spiel, uh, and she does the spiel perfectly. But she has to do so many takes, and it turns out that there's a lot of alcohol in it. Mm. So by the time they're actually doing it live, the entire bit has warped and become an entirely <laughs> different monologue, and it's a brilliant piece of comic writing. Mm. So that's a really good example here. However, I do warn you, a lot of Lucy episodes haven't aged as well as you might want them to, and oh, there's, well, some, they, there's some racism made, in there, some sexism They were in made there. in the 1950s, yeah. so that's, yeah, it's being written by white writers in the 1950s. But a surprising number of them actually do work still yeah, to this yeah. day, just because they're, they're kind of just existing to set up one big gag, and then the mm. big gag goes up beautifully, and that's the whole thing. I, I don't know if it's being broadcast anywhere, if it's on it's usually, streaming services. I think it still is. There's like, Lucy is like always broadcast somewhere. It's yeah. like the most syndicated show in like TV history. Mm. Um... What else? What are some other good? Uh, Twilight Zone had a million great episodes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm trying to think of like we have like one. Uh, Night of the Meek is a great Christmas episode. Yeah, it's yeah. A really really bittersweet and mm -hmm. beautiful. Um, I like that one a lot. Uh, there is a my favorite one of my favorite episodes of Tales from the Crypt, mm. uh, which is one of my favorite shows. Uh, 
wasn't initially intended to be an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Yellow. They, yeah, Yellow. Yeah, uh, they were trying one. to do a spinoff series called Two-Fisted Tales, which was also based on old EC comics. And Two-Fisted Tales were all war stories, but they were also often twinged with some sort of, like, irony or poetic justice. Uh, um, yeah. Just took place in the trenches of, of certain wars, and there was a lot of war violence. So they decided to make a pilot for Two-Fisted Tales, and they made an episode called Yellow. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Kirk Douglas. And uh, it was about a soldier who uh, was going to be put to death for uh, desertion. Yeah, for cowardice, basically. Uh, yeah, it was and going his father, to... But his father was a high-ranking officer and mm. is very ashamed of his son. Mm. And it's all about like how his father is going to deal with it. And it's, it's a Tales from the Crypt episode, so something really shitty happens. But it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, it's a brilliant bit of writing. And it's a, a lot of discussion as to, yeah. you know, is this cowardice or is this common sense? Is yeah. running away from people who are shooting at you cowardly or is yeah. that saving your life? It's really good. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of discussions to that. And so it doesn't have the same sort of, like, grim sense of fun that most of Tales from the Crypt has. No, it's but actually it's still really, a brilliant piece of television. It's actually genuinely poignant in that yeah, episode, yeah. I think. Um I'm a big fan of the television series Avatar The Last Airbender, and that's a show that does a really good job of combining individual episodes with a larger story arc, Um, and there are at least two episodes of Avatar The Last Airbender that I consider basically perfect. Mm. And they're both in the second season and they're actually really close to each other. Uh, One of them is called uh, The Tales of Ba Sing Se, uh, and it's after um, Aang and all of his... uh, fellow travelers uh, have come to this gigantic walled off city and they discover that it's actually not as utopian as they thought it was. But Tales of Bossing say is all of the, the characters get like their own story. It's kind of the, you know, 22 short films about Springfield kind of thing. Uh, except this one is it's, funny, but it's, it's also uh, uh, Canterbury Tales, Canterbury Tales yeah. as well. Uh, it, it's a format. Uh, it's an anthology format within the episode. And um, it's genuinely funny until it is genuinely heartbreaking. And then two episodes after that, there's an episode called Appa's... I'm sorry, one episode after that. My apologies. Mm-hmm. Just the right in a row. Uh, Appa's Lost Days. Earlier in the season, uh, Aang had lost his, uh, his, his pet, his mount. He has a flying bison. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, got, it's got like eight legs or something. Yeah, and it's, and it's his best friend. It's family to him. And he lost it in a tragic circumstance and no one knew where it went. Uh, and in that episode, you find out what happened to Appa, and it's the saddest fucking thing uh, in the world. It's genuinely beautiful, potent, harrowing drama. He he couldn't hold the door. Yeah. Uh, oh, please. Have, Game of Thrones wishes it could pull off an episode like Appa's Lost Days. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Um, those are good. Um, there's... A lot of really brilliant... My favorite episodes of The X-Files are the funny ones. Uh, War of the Corporophage is a great one. Humbug is a great one. Uh, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose is funny and sad. Yeah, that's, um, that may be the best episode of the whole series. Clyde I, Bruckman's I, Final I would Repose. argue Bad Blood, because that's sort of a Rashomon episode as well. It's a fun one. It's yeah, a fun it's one. It's really, really funny. Jose Chung's From Outer Space is brilliant on any, on yeah. any, on any given day. Jose Chung's From Outer Space uh, with... <laughs> Because they cast Charles Nelson Riley for first thing. Ugh. And there's also a really brilliant cameo from Alex Trebek. Yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen the episode, I'm going to hold it off because you really need to experience that episode. Yeah. Um, what are some of my favorite? Um, it's hard to put, pick out like the best of all the Star Treks. But we talk yeah, about we have our favorites. Time, we, have so our yeah, favorites. we have our favorites. Yeah, um, I'm a big fan. I'll, I'll go to bat for this, and I don't get a chance to talk about it as much 
outside of our Star Trek podcast on Patreon. But uh, the animated series episode yesteryear is one of the great Spock stories, and people don't talk about it oh, enough. Oh, yeah, where Spock one. goes back in time and meets himself as a child. Yeah, that's actually, like, a really great story, and I will I will take the Pepsi Challenge with that and any classic live-action episode. Absolutely. It's at least yeah. as good the, as the, almost uh, any other classic Star Trek. The animated series was, on the whole, just better written than the original yeah. series, especially yeah. when you compare it to some of those early yeah. season one episodes uh, where it's like... They don't know what the hell the show like, is here, yet. Here, here's a child planet that's somehow just like Earth. Also, there's time travel. It's like, what, what, what is, what's what? this episode about? What is going on here? Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, it's it's kind of exists in its own nebulous universe, but we all have our mm. favorite episodes of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, yeah. Uh, for me, yeah. I think Cave Dwellers is wall-to-wall the funniest one, but not a year will go by that I don't watch uh, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians okay. on MST3K, yeah, yeah. at least at Christmas time. No, the, the classics are classics for a reason. Mm. Cave, Dwe- Cave Dwellers, Mitchell, Pod People, Ega, these are all... Uh, Actually, speaking ex- of Christmas episodes... Two-hour chunks of television. Uh, real fast, just I don't want to forget, uh, there's a wonderful, wonderful episode of uh, Justice League oh. called Comfort <laughs> and Joy... Which is about what all the members of the Justice League do on Christmas. And it's really, 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 really sweet. And there's a whole bit where the Flash wants to, like, get a gift for all the kids at this orphanage. But, damn it, like, the, the what, what is it? The ultra-humanite breaks it while he's in the middle of, like, stealing some stuff. And so he, like, guilts the ultra-humanite into making the kids a better toy. <laughs> That's a great bit. Uh, the I, two... I know there was a, a bit in, uh, I think you showed me something in a Justice League Christmas special where... Uh, was Superman and Mar- Martian Manhunter? Uh, well, no, Clark Kent has gone home for Christmas, yeah, yeah. and uh, and he's picking up the gifts from underneath the tree and kind of looking at him for a second, uh-huh. and then just sort of muttering to himself, ah, lead box. Like, yeah, his, they use his, lead line his, paper. His parents have thought to to wrap the presents <laughs> in lead so he can't use his X-ray vision to And I like, I like that it's like the one kind of naughty thing Superman would do is yeah, try, like, to, to try to sneak a peek at his presents. <laughs> it's so fucking cute. That makes... That, uh, that, Superman, I want, shame on you. Oh, I... There's, a, there's the great bit in that one where... Um, because he takes Martian Manhunter home for Christmas because he has nowhere to go. He's the only Martian in existence. Mm-hmm. He has you know no home for Christmas. Dark so he says, "I want to take you home for uh, other Martians." Not in the, not in that show at that time. No, he was like the last oh. of his kind, much like Superman oh, okay. is the last Kryptonian. Okay. Uh, and uh, so he wanted to take Martian Manhunter home for Christmas to like give him like a family for Christmas, and mm-hmm. you know his family is like very welcoming. And but he's they, like a, a green alien man. Yeah, but like they're cool with it. They're, okay. They know they know their son's an alien, so it's all good. Um. And, uh, but there's this great bit where they're talking about, oh God, yeah, it's so hard raising this one at Christmas time, you know, it's got to find lead, uh, you got to wrap all your gifts in lead-lined wrapping paper, and then Clark Kent, not missing a beat, says, you mean, Santa wrapped them. <laughs> and his parents are like, uh, yeah, sure, sure Clark. Sure, Clark. <laughs> yeah, yes, dear. So that one, that one gives me endless joy to watch that episode every single year. I watch that one. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the thing with like comic episodes of the X-Files or uh, you know the, the Christmas episode of Justice League yeah. or even that episode of Breaking Bad you were talking about is they stand out because they're different from the rest of the show. Yeah, they're a break from the routine. Yeah. You yeah. Know? The, the big event uh, episodes that sort of define what the show is, I'm not sure if those are ever the ones that people remember the best. You know, sometimes shows mm. earn them and they do a good mm. job and this and they build up I think Avatar builds up really, really well and like those episodes actually really stand out. Uh but yeah, oftentimes it's the ones that give us 
an opportunity to just sort of hang out with the characters. Yeah. yeah. And those are the ones that we really cherish, I find. Um, so those are some of our examples. Um, I'd be curious to hear if anyone else has a particularly mm-hmm. interesting favorite television episode. You want to write in and talk any, to us about it? Yeah, any yeah. show. Be very, very curious to hear. But thank you for writing in. Here's a letter from Brian. Hi, Brian. Hi, Brian. Uh, this is uh, Two Cents from a Sopranos fan. I, oh. I recently reviewed the film The Many Saints of Newark. And uh, we were in a unique position where neither, I had not seen it, so mm. I didn't review the film. But you had never seen The Sopranos. And while I wouldn't say that invalidates your opinion, you're not the target demographic for that movie. And so mm. you probably came at it well, from a different angle. Now that I've seen it, I know I'm not. But well, you know, yeah. going in, there's well, no I think, to tell. I, I think it's fair to say that the makers of that film were expecting people to have uh, a lot of familiarity with The Sopranos. So, so you, you had an interesting take mm. on it. And uh, let's hear some yeah. else. Uh, uh, Brian says, well, Rockmeister... I couldn't agree more with your review. Wow. And I watched and loved the show. I really didn't even mind the controversial final episode. I was baffled, but not angry. Speaking of baffling, what is even more baffling is why the creative forces behind the Many Saints of Newark thought that they had a complete script, much less a compelling one. It's all threads and no tapestry. Each individual thread is interesting, but none of them are developed and none of them goes to a payoff. The most truly baffling thing in this is this movie was advertised with the slogan, Who Made Tony Soprano? Well, nobody apparently, because Tony and Dickie have so few scenes together that there's no sense that Dickie, this is the uh, the Alessandro Nivola character, uh, was his was a crucial influence in his life, and the no. scenes they did have together have no resonance. Nothing in this movie has any resonance. A creator slash writer, David Chase, made a great TV show. He is way too talented to write this script and see this movie and think he nailed it. How could they not see how undercooked it was? So, yep, a C minus from this Sopranos watcher. I'll be at a high one because at least those individual threads are interesting. Oh, there you go, Brian. You know, it it always fascinates me how um, you know a lot of people will like you know the show is successful and people want to see it continue, and every once in a while it can't continue successfully after a break or Mm. whatever. but sometimes it just doesn't. You know, all the X-Files movies were disappointing to me in some way. Like, oh, the yeah. X- X-Files the movie was not a particularly interesting conspiracy episode. Like, it, the scale was bigger and that mm. was nice. But it, I, if it was an episode of the show, it wouldn't go down as one of the best. And I, then, I suppose it, it was notable in that it showed things in the movie yeah. that I think they either didn't have the budget or just the temerity right. to do in the show. Like, they actually had a flying saucer on camera. Right, and that's cool. Uncommon but on the show. That's cool, but that's budgetary. That's not really story-wise. Yeah, so, like, it's right. cool to see that, but is the story really something that would be that interesting? And oh, then I Want and to Mulder, Believe is just a bad movie. I, yeah, I want to believe, yeah. They, they, they didn't, they didn't think that one. Well, it was... I, I, very little of that movie is even memorable to me. Like, I remember Billy Connolly trying... Like trying yeah, really hard. The, the the ethical dilemma is they found a genuine psychic who can locate like the like dead bodies or the sources yeah. like the scenes of crimes, and the FBI is using him to help. But he's also a convicted child molester, so they don't know how much they want to like employ. So how ethical is it to let him stay free if he's helping the FBI? Which really seems more a that's a fucked up storyline. Yeah. B that feels more like an episode than a movie, doesn't it? It sure does. Yeah. 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 Uh, and also it came out during the George W. Bush administration, whereas the X-Files is very much a Clinton administration kind of show. Well, you got to see how the X-Files really struggled to find any reason to exist when they actually brought the series back. Yeah. Every time they tried to talk about something topical. Look, the fucking government had basically admitted UFOs exist Hmm. publicly to everyone. And you know what happened? Not a goddamn Nothing, thing. Yeah, that kind like, of invalidates uh, the entire premise of the X-Files. That if everybody found out, it would just cause chaos and yeah. disorder. It's no. like, no, it's not worth keeping the secrets. Yeah. It's not worth it. We, yeah, we, yeah. we would go, oh, 
Well, we kind of suspected that. Like eh. we, we we want transparency. Thank you for that. Now yeah. more, please. Yeah, it's it, it, it no. didn't no, change us, our universe. Give you us know? transparency on the money and the power structure, and we'd be yeah. happier. Um, anyway, yeah. Uh, thank you for uh, shedding a little light from like an actual Sopranos fan because I have not seen the show, and after yeah. seeing the movie, I'm not really moved to see the show. There's nothing. Yeah about those characters or that kind of storytelling that I found particularly compelling. Well, that's not, that's not encouraging, is it? No. no. All right, uh, moving uh, on. Here's a letter from Humphrey Moose. Oh, hi, Humphrey. Moose. Um, Been well. Hello, Bibbs and Mount Whitney. Uh, bit of trivia, I was named after Mount Whitney. Indeed. Yeah, if I, I, my mom said that uh, if I, if they had a boy, they would mm-hmm. name it after Mount Whitney, mm-hmm. and if they had a girl, they would name it after Mount Shasta. So if oh, you'd have been a great Shasta, if I if if I had been been born in a female body, I would have been named Shasta. Is Mount Whitney the highest peak in America, or just like on this like coast? It's the highest. It's the highest peak in California. Okay, mm. I was a little hazy on um, that. Okay, M- McKinley is the highest peak in the United States. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I'm not crazy. All right, that makes no. sense. All right, I'm moving on. Uh, I want to start off by saying you two are aces, the best. Oh, oh very kind. We're okay. Uh, <laughs> take, uh, take the compliment, Whitney. You're great. <laughs> Had a blast from the past as I finally got around to seeing Promising Young Woman. Oh. And holy God, I stopped halfway through to get a snack and I found I was shaking from adrenaline and anger. I went back and listened to your review and I loved slash agreed with it wholeheartedly. I barely recognized the cue for Britney Spears Toxic as the arrangement came up, mm. only noticing because of my subtitles. And I was pleased to remember Whitney found that as exciting as I did when he listened. Uh, yeah, they use a, they, yeah, they use they very cleverly use a cover of Toxic, mm. which is a great fucking cover of Toxic. Yeah, there's, there's the great cover of Toxic and they also rather cleverly use a music cue from uh, Paris Hilton. Oh, uh, yeah, that's really great. Yeah, which is the best use of a Paris Hilton song in a movie. Also, I, got, I must admit, I think, uh, a slight subject change, but Malignant has the best use of Where Is My Mind since Fight Club. <laughs> really yeah, great yeah. use of that. Anyway, moving on. Uh, two things crossed my mind about your review. One, I wish you had spent a little more time discussing how her particular choices and method of dealing with her grief, the her, quote, bar hopping, had kept her, uh, one... It kept her... Uh, hold on a second. You got it. Uh, one, the state of arrayed, arrayed, arrayed development and how forgiveness is seen in the Arrested. context of the film. Arrested. Okay, it says arrayed. That's okay. That, sorry, I was a little thrown. Typo. Uh, both of those I thought were really critical things of how her agency is adjusted, her sense of justice, and, the f- and how the forms of forgiveness and mercy have in the film. Uh, even without spoiling plot pieces, I was wanting more after seeing the film. And number two, uh, and I understand why this is, but in the same podcast, you spent 32 minutes discussing Wonder Woman 1984, another 20 minutes discussing Soul, and a scant nine minutes talking about this movie. I understand why, but why? <laughs> uh, That's actually a good question. Just getting, uh, just getting you, letting you know that your shows are appreciated, and now I have to go and have a good cry because I hope I never have to do anything like that for my loved ones. Uh, thank you for being the good cats you are, even Whitney's terrible ability to remember plot details. Yeah. Your Shang-Chi recap was particularly vexing. Warmest <laughs> regards, Humphrey Moo. What did I get wrong about Shang-Chi? I, I don't know. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Like, you know, when, when I see it, okay. I'm going to re-listen to your review and I'm going to... Maybe This so. is the second or third time I've heard this. Uh, <laughs> so right. I need to, I need so to here's, go back. Here's Whitney, the, Whitney is the type of critic, and I really think this is fine, but I do think it's something that people should be aware of. And, and tell me if I'm wrong here. You consider right. plot a detail, pretty much. Um, yeah, plot plot is less important, I think, than it typically gets credit for. Um, I've I've said I've used this metaphor before, uh, and it's clumsy as hell. But I feel like a plot or a story is like the clothesline on which you hang a quilt. Yeah, you're here to see the quilt. Right. You, the, the the clothesline needs to be tight. It needs to be really functional. It needs to keep the quilt it up. And if it doesn't do that, up, then then yeah, then the, the plot's the, a problem. 
But all you need is it for it, for it to be like a structure, something to hang something on. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're looking at is what's hanging up. I don't entirely and agree that, with you here, but I looking, do respect this opinion. What, what you're looking at is character moments and emotions yeah. and themes and tones and philosophies, the things that are actually being communicated to you mm-hmm. through the story. The story is, is a functional part of a movie. So I tend not to focus on it too yeah. much. Um, I, I tend to believe that's yeah. more on a case-by-case basis. I believe that certain films mm-hmm. are more about conveying plot mm-hmm. than others. And on in those cases, if the plot doesn't work, it becomes more of a problem. Yeah. Uh, but generally speaking, I, I see and, your point. And I in, in those Marvel you. movies, the plots tend to be like a little bit convoluted. Like even sometimes, though, sometimes. Like, uh, there's an, an ancient gangster with magic rings. He needs two dragon eyes, and when he puts inserts the dragon eyes into a statue, it reveals a map to a moving maze, which will lead to a magical village. And mm-hmm. in the magical village is a magical door to the afterworld, where his dead wife is living. And he wants to break it open, but if he does so, demons will get out. Wait a minute. That's, that's the plot of the movie. That's in a roundabout way. That's uh, the plot to Spider-Man into the Spider Verse. Kingpin mm-hmm. builds all of these machines to get him uh, to yeah, doorway into like a world where his wife is still alive, and in yeah. the process, it, okay, and, weird. Anyway, and there are other details like Shang Chi has one of the necklaces. He yeah. sends bad guys well, out to get it. Here's the thing: get moving away from that because that's yeah. that's ultra specific. Um, and I think but, this this also this also ties into why maybe we spend a little less time talking about promising a woman. We talked about it way more at the end of the of the year when we did our best films hmm. of the year. Um, so we did give it more time. Uh, but certain movies, because they are of a particular genre, or they have uh, certain expectations that they are gleeful to meet. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you talk about the plot. Yeah. Like you don't want to go nuts and like reveal every single thing, but you can kind of be cavalier about it and you can talk about like, oh, here's how the people in this rom-com would end up together. What? You didn't think they would? Hmm. Like so we can like be a little bit more elaborate and a little bit more detailed when we're reviewing a movie that has only just come out and not everyone has seen it. Hmm. In the case of something like Promising Young Woman, a movie which is, by the way, and I know some people were not a fan and I've read some negative criticism of the film, which is entirely valid. It's a complicated movie with the, some complicated viewpoints, and I totally get why some people just did not appreciate it. Uh, I come at it from a different angle, but I totally get it. it mm-hmm. I think it's one of the things that makes it interesting. Um, but because the movie is such a surprise, because so much of the movie is uniquely structured, and it's a story that is told in a very unusual way, the more we could articulate about it the less impact it would have. And we try to focus on this, I think, on a case-by-case basis in terms of which movies... We would love to spend an hour talking about every single movie. Oh, Wouldn't for sure. that be great? But we do have to pick our battles sometimes. And in the case of movies that you know, maybe are a little less well-advertised, people haven't watched the, the trailers which give away too much over and over again, um, I feel like we try when we can, especially when we like them, to err on the side of not giving away too much. So as a result, sometimes this results in newer films that we love being spoken of a little bit more briefly, a little bit more vaguely. That's a downside. Mm. Uh, And, you know, hey, maybe we're wrong to do that. Maybe we should be doing it the exact opposite way. I don't know. Well, when it comes to something like WW84, um, that is a movie, that is a bad movie, by the way. Just flat out bad film. There's there's a few things I like about it, but mostly it does not work. It it doesn't work. The the story is dumb. Uh, The the central conceit is a little strange. Yeah, it's uh, it's weirdly like I'm, I'm, hypocritical. I'm in its portrayal of its villains. Yeah, it's like it's, it doesn't. 
the way it treats Cheetah is fucks, it pisses me off to this day. Yeah. It, uh, they really, really fucking hypocritical. So well, when we're talking about a movie like that, it, it's, it fails in so many respects. Yeah. On, like with story and character bits that mm-hmm. th- these things are sort of in our head that actually takes us a while to unpack all of that. Yeah. It's not that it warrants that much time, that it's more important film in, in any kind of way. And, and it's, one, it's one important could argue that, that maybe it is because it's going to reach more people. And as a result, mm-hmm. it, it warrants... Mm-hmm a significant amount of analysis because yeah, otherwise but, people might just absorb it without yeah, thinking. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that's a concern that, I often have about main, the more mainstream entertainment is that they yeah, get we, less critical analysis when they should get more because more, more people are getting certain yeah, lessons. They, we have they to potentially out could have a greater impact like on a larger group of people. Uh, but yeah, your, your, your point is entirely valid. And I think it boils down to something that a lot of critics talk about. I know I have. Uh, it's easier to write or give, in our case, in a podcast, a review of a movie that doesn't work mm. because it's easy to dictate the content. Here's why it does not work. Yeah, we figured out why it doesn't yeah. work. And Here's if there's why. A, Here's if there's a, a lot wrong with it. You have a plenty. Of, you have plenty of material. If it's good, we can explain what works. But it's trickier to explain what works if someone hasn't seen it. And the other thing is, is that if it does work, I think we're a little bit more eager to let people discover it for themselves as much as we can and not try to go into too much detail ahead of time so that hopefully we can recommend a movie while still allowing you, the audience, our audience, to, if you haven't seen the movie yet, see it the way we saw it to some extent, which Mm. is with somewhat fresh eyes. Yeah, Yeah. Because it's a danger when a critic either oversells or undersells something Mm. you know like if we undersell something you might not go see it if we oversell it there's a chance that you will go see it but maybe you'll have thought it would be the greatest thing in the universe and instead it was merely really good and all of a sudden a movie that you would have thought was really good becomes some kind of disappointment it's a a slippery slope our brief review is in its own weird way a stronger selling point that's the idea anyway maybe it's it's misguided i don't know but that's what that's where our head's at and yeah, and again, if we we delve too much into a movie like Promising One Young Woman, we give it away. Yeah, uh, and that's actually one yeah. where the the plot and the events are interesting enough yeah, I, that I giving do, them away would really hurt the film. Um, Dave White gave me a, a early on uh, gave uh, gave out a, gave me a pretty good philosophy when it comes to like spoilers and revealing too much information about a movie. Uh-huh. It's like don't don't like give away any kind of like significant surprises. And if yeah. you're a wise critic, you know what to discern which of those things, what those things yeah. are. Uh, unless it's the selling point. Yeah. If if you can't sell it in any other way, they're saying uh, this movie was really boring, but then it pulled this really weird twist out of nowhere. I'm going to tell you about that twist because otherwise, As- no one's going to bother to yeah. see it and, fi- Especially and, and find if, out that uh, there's a twist there. Yeah. If it's like something like the movie Serenity, I was going to bring this up, <laughs> <laughs> which is not the Joss Whedon film, the Matthew McConaughey film. The Matthew Very McConaughey film. It's sort of like this this scuzzy beach noir about a. a Ex ex uh, wife of the Matthew McConaughey character who hires him to kill her new husband. Yeah, and it, but there's a, there's a but twist there's in a, that movie. There's a twist in the middle that is so completely what the fuck. It's like that you kind of just have to see it to believe it. And if but here's the thing: if we didn't tell you that that twist was there, all you would hear is scuzzy beach movie with Matthew McConaughey, and we would have to tell you that that scuzzy beach movie without the twist isn't very interesting because hmm. it's not. 
The twist doesn't make the movie good. The movie is stupid, <laughs> but it sure is interesting. It's it, but it, it, it does something it's different. A re- it's a really special kind of stupid. Yeah, I, I recommend you watch Serenity because yeah. it's quite bad. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on to another. Let's one. move on uh, to these. These are issues that critics wrestle with a lot. How much time do we give something? How much do we give away? Uh, it's we we make choices. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. But we're yeah, trying we, to do the right things to the best fa- of our abilities. Trying to hone our instincts constantly. Um, Here's a letter from The Windy. Hello, The Windy. Hello. Um, Dear Bibbs and the coolest master of all rock. See, you got the cool Su- nickname. Sucker MC is better call me Sire. Damn um, it. All right. Anyway, in, one of, in one of your recent critically acclaimed episodes, William talked about going to his local library and looking for information on fighting demons and vampires or other movie baddies. Yeah. Uh, you you commented on this because this is a, a common trope in monster yeah. movies. O- often in a monster movie, people will be like, "Oh no, we're being hunted by a demon or something," and they'll go to their local library and go to the apparently extensive demonology section, and they'll find some ancient tome with full of great detail. And as an experiment, I went to my closest local library, and it was just like, "What if I was being attacked by a demon? What could I find at my local library?" And the best I could find was a book that says, "If a demon is after you, get a talisman." That's it. There was no additional information. <laughs> just some kind of talisman. Well, I took it upon myself. This is the, the listener. Aww. I took it upon myself to try this. Granted, wow. I did not. I I did not go to my local library, but rather one of the biggest public libraries in Vienna. I put on some montage music, and I got started. I actually found more than I thought I would, as I expected. Yeah. Not really books written by people who believe in various subjects to tell you what to do, rather by people who do research about the topics. A lot of books about the history of the belief in vampires, werewolves, and ghosts, and how these myths started in various cultures. Mm. So I'd say if really something really happens to you, you would definitely find a lot of material in this library, but most of it probably would not be helpful in dealing with a demon or whatever else ails you. You would rather probably have to sift through a lot of pages of descriptive research to probably get con- conflicting advice about how to deal with your supernatural adversary. I would love for this to be the official Yelp review of that library. <laughs> like, if you're... It's, it's perfectly the, good. The biggest library in Vienna. If you're looking for cookbooks, mm. awesome. If you're looking for a book on demonology, you're going to be doing some sifting if you want practical applications. Here's what I found. You go into, like... The, the main body of the library, you're going to find like well-researched books about sure. like uh, folklore and, and myths. Yeah. And those, those will be interesting. Those will be helpful. And those will be, you know, very scholarly, good, good yeah. information and scholarly and well-researched, but yeah, they're not going to tell you how, how to shoot a demon in the head. Uh, they're not going to just flat out say, listen, some you've got it. So you, there's not going to be a chapter say, so you've got a bagul problem. Yeah. Yeah. And here's how to stop them. Like, <laughs> You know where you go? You go to the kids section of the library. That's true. That has more practical, actionable advice. That's actually true. (laughs) Go to a a really thin book with a lot of pictures. The main branch of... I grew up in Pasadena, California. The main branch of the Pasadena Library. By the way, beautiful library. Mm. Just absolutely stunning. Looks like the movie Seven. Like, just really classical old library. Mm. I haven't been inside in a while. I hope they haven't renovated because it's gorgeous. Uh, They had a pretty big kids section. It was all, like... This whole corner of the library and had this gorgeous green carpet and like <laughs> and they had like oh, a God, ton of like libraries. a right. ton of occult shit in there uh-huh. and it was all like here you can tell a person's a werewolf if they have like hairy the, palms the, the, or these, whatever yeah, like, hairy palms if the, yeah. the the three first fingers on their hands are the same length yeah, That's yeah something yeah. I learned from the the kids yeah. section it was I kept checking out all these books yeah the adult section is always just like ah eh, it's probably not true the kids section is like. It is true, and you should have a wooden stake under your bed at all fucking times. Just and in I, case. And I'm like, who the hell? What, what a choice that publisher made. <laughs> Holy shit. 
So yeah, next time you do research about monsters, go straight to the kids section. Nicely they'll, done. They'll let you know. Um, there's more of this letter. Please. Uh, on an unrelated note, but re- relating to a recent letter from Brazil, I think, mm. there are a lot of movies that have vastly different titles in ger- in the German-speaking region. Oh yeah, we were talking Here, about how some, cer- yeah. certain movies, when they're released internationally, they get retitled for reasons which may sometimes may seem arbitrary, but usually it's something to do with the original title doesn't translate very well into every language or the market in a different country or culture might respond well to a different approach to titling. Yeah. Uh, So in Germany, what do we got? uh, Tremors Mm. was called in the land of the rocket worms. Awesome. (laughs) And, and, uh, and and they're translating uh, the the German title, but that's awesome. Uh, The pacifier, (laughs) the pacifier, which is the uh, Vin Diesel film became the baby nader. Ooh. Uh, Life of Pi became Shipwreck with Tiger, which sounds like, sounds like a painting title to it, me. It, yeah. it is what it is. Mm. <laughs> it's on the 10. Uh, oh, this is good. In Bruges became To See Bruges Ellipsis and Die? With a question mark. Nice. <laughs> yes, there's a question mark in the German title. I love it. To See Bruges and Die. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail became The Knights of the Coconut. Uh, the, okay, the, that's cute. That's gonna work. I buy it. Yeah. Uh, the original Ocean's Eleven. Frankie and his shooting buddies. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I want to see a book called that. That yeah. sounds like a book about the making of Ocean's Eleven. And the man who knew too little became Agent Zero Zero Nothing. Yeah, no tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a James Bond knockoff bit. Yeah, it's uh, cute. Escape from New York was called the Rattlesnake. Yeah, snake, snake, snake yeah, is a snake. Buy it. Yeah, it works. And if it's not confusing enough, this is a new trend uh, to still give movies an English title, but a different one from the original. Like uh, in Germany, Thor the Dark World was in English called Thor the Dark Kingdom. Oh. And Captain America the Winter Soldier was The Return of the First Avenger. Well, I, mean, I actually like that the, better. That's but, a good uh, name, yeah. It's got some poetry. I always like, you know, sort of more verbose titles than they have poetry yeah. to and, uh, and the movie Cold Pursuit, that's the Liam Neeson film, if you remember oh, yeah. that one, became Hard Powder. Ooh. Because it, it takes place in the snow. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. And many more. Oh, one last thing. I promise. Ah! And then I'm done. You recently <laughs> talked about representation of disabled people in movies and that disabilities are hardly ever uh, coincidental to the plot. In Jennifer's Body, mm. J.K. Simmons' character has a hook for a hand. And it's just a thing. Yeah. Neither the movie nor the character ever points this out. It has nothing to do with anything. No hint of why he lost a hand. He's just a normal high school teacher who has normal high school teacher character things. Uh, it's still an able actor playing the role, but I wanted to bring it up because you talked about that it. That is a good example. Uh, and thank, I had forgotten thank about you for that. Your time and thank you for that. Produced that yours, the windy. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it always weirds me out when like, it, it, it's almost weirder when, when different countries don't translate the title. I remember finding out about this from Eddie Izzard, who in his Dress to Kill a special talked about how uh, he he did the uh, he did a recap of the movie Speed, but in French, uh-huh. which was kind of funny. Uh, and of course, yes, that was from the movie Speed, which in France, of course, was called La Vitesse, or at least it should have been. Instead, it was called Speed. <laughs> they just yeah, didn't it translate it. Didn't translate. Um, which, which that happens here sometimes. In, yeah. so, mama tambien. They didn't translate mm. that. You know. Um, uh, I, I remember often here in the United States they'll give us both, mm-hmm. uh, like almost like a subtitle. It's, yeah, it's yeah. like the postman in parentheses Il Postino. Uh, yeah, there you go. You could just call it Il Postino. I mean, yeah, we can pronounce that. Yeah, uh, yeah. life is beautiful. La vita e bella. Yeah, that happens yeah, as well. Yeah. They, they'd like to do that sort of double up, uh, but yeah, yeah. Of, often they'll just sort of give us the uh, the original title. Um, Titan is a good example. Yeah. Um, that's the French word for titanium. They didn't call it titanium here in the United States. They called it titan, and 
that's how we've been referring to it. It is what it is. Um, but anyway, thank you so much. And and uh, we're always curious to hear more of these. I forgot one of them. Um, uh, in oh, in I think it's Japan. Uh, Fast and Furious isn't called the Fast and Furious. It's called Wild Speed. That's right. Which is an awesome name. And then when they did the uh, spinoff of Hobbs and Shaw, it was called Wild Speed colon Super Combo. <laughs> awesome. Wild Speed Super Combo is a better title than any of those. Yeah. I mean, the, fir- the first one has a really ungainly title anyway. The Fast and the Furious. The yeah. Fast and the Furious. And they waited until the fourth movie just to use the phrase Fast and Furious. Yep. Which is the, the parlance we use. Yeah, a little cleaner, yeah. The Fast and the Furious repl- implies that there's two classes of people in that movie. Yeah. Some of them are fast and some of them are furious. Indeed. But it, it's Vin Diesel one. is furious. Uh, Paul Walker is merely fast. Well, P- Vin Diesel is the leader of a car driving gang. You think he's the Indeed. fast one. Yeah, but he's the angry. So the law, he's still the furious. And the law enforcement is like angry that he's getting away with crime. So they'd be furious, right? Yeah, I don't cops, know. If that's that's not fury. Furious. That, that's not fury, though. They're yeah. not like it's not personal to them. Whereas Vin Diesel has got a lot. It's got a lot of anger. He's working out. And Remember when they were just like stealing stuff from trucks? They were stealing DVD players. <laughs> <laughs> that's how old the original Fast and Furious is. And now they're g- stealing DVD players. Given how big their uh, like their internal structure is, and yeah. how many of them have like their own garages and stuff, yeah. I'm guessing that was a pretty lucrative business. Apparently, it, it amazes me. I was I remember watching that movie, and I was totally amazed. Like. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You show up with like a supercharged, top-of-the-line engine, ultra race car, and then you just cavalierly bet the car, and then you just give it away, and you just get another car? Where the fuck do you work? Where the fuck do you work that you're getting this shit? They live in a world where cars are the currency. They don't use money to pay for the cars. They, they trade the cars place. around. Well, How do you get a car? You uh, you prove yourself in a, in a in test of courage. <laughs> in combat. Anyway, you, moving on. You, you, you got into Detroit. And Whitney, in I wild. beg of you, let's move right, on. All right, fine. <laughs> we got uh, time for one to do more. Here's a letter from JP. Hello, JP. Hi, uh, Dear Bibbs and Rockmeister, uh, following up on your discussion of No Time to Die and Muppets Haunted Mansion. Oh, I love that these are together. I here present my treatment of The Man with the Golden Hen. <laughs> <laughs> James Thank you for this. Ba- James Bond Muppet mashup. Uh, unlike you, I decided on an all-Muppet cast. James Pond would be played by Kermit. I feel like that has to have been done. James Doesn't Pond. that feel like that has to have been like, like a, a gag? like that on the Muppet Come show. Come on, how could they not? It's, mm-hmm. That's brilliant. If you came... Okay, I'm not, I'm not accusing you of anything. But if you came up with that all on your own, that's fucking brilliant. And I'm disappointed in the makers of the Muppet show for not doing it sooner. Because James <laughs> Pond is good. But moving on. Um, M is played by Dr. Teeth. Mm. Uh, Money Penny is Janice. Uh, yeah. Doctor Bunsen, uh, Doctor Bunsen, Honey Q. Uh, yeah, that is, works. Is Q uh, that, and, and yeah. Beaker is R. Yeah. Uh, the CIA station chief is Sam the Eagle. Uh, F- Felix Fozzie Lighter is Fozzie Bear. Fozzie plays Felix Lighter. Doctor Gonzo is the villain. Gonzo. I get it. Uh, Pause is Animal and Piggy Galore is Miss Piggy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, these work. The plot. <laughs> M sends Pond to investigate the mysterious phenomena of people turned, being turned into chickens. 
possibly including another double O agent who we only see as a chicken. M is suspicious of a man who has recently become a powerful player in the chicken market, Dr. Zoe. After a brief flirtation with Moneypenny and a check-in with Dr. Bunsen Honeycue to get an anti-chicken watch, it's phrased chicken wire, Pond goes to meet the mysterious Dr. Zoe. Dr. Zoe is... Uh, surprisingly friendly, and his, assi- his assistant, Piggy Galore, there's probably some flirting here too, though mostly on the part of Piggy, show him around the base, but when he tries to look into the restricted area, say, what's over there? He's discouraged by the fearsome paws. That's like, like Jaws. No, I get it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I've cracked your code. Yes, yes, is it? <laughs> Your insidious... That night, Pond is sneaking around when he discovers Dr. Zoe and his rocket and his evil laboratory where we see, dun-dun-dun, a Muppet being transformed into a chicken. He also finds Dr. Zoe has his own rocket. Unfortunately, he is discovered by Paws and all his men, well, Muppets, who capture him. He is strapped to a table and we get the villain monologue from Dr. Zoe about how he plans to launch his chicken ray into space and turn the entire planet into chickens. But why? I like chickens. Oh yeah, that sounds right. He activates the ray so Pond will be Pond will be transformed, but leaves it before it activates because he's a Bond villain, only for Pond to be rescued by Piggy Galore. Bond escapes and seeks the help from the CIA. The station chief is dubious, but assigns an agent, Fozzie Lighter, to help. The final act is Paws and Felix assaulting Dr. Zoe's lair before he can launch his rocket. Obviously, the forces of Goodwin, helped by the def- defection of Piggy Galore. And the movie ends with Dr. Zoe being blasted by his own rocket, but without the transforming ray, while Pond and Piggy smooch. And the rest... Uh, and the rocket rises. We see the, like, the electric mayhem playing the Bond theme. Okay, I have one question. Who's Pause? Like, who's who's playing? Because I, oh. I assumed Fozzie was Pause. Pa- pause was Animal. Oh, Pause is Animal. Yeah. Okay, then that's fine. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. that works. I realized because uh, I for a second I assumed it was Fozzie, and then Fozzie came uh, in there. Okay. I realize Dr. Teeth is an unusual choice for M, but there aren't very many female Muppets, so Janet as Moneypenny was my only choice. I picture her as being way more into Pond than he is into her. I wait for Disney and or Eon Productions to contact me to write the complete script, JP. We just uh, need more Muppets everywhere. That's, that's the solution to life, the universe, and everything, really. I'm, A liberal application of Muppets never I'm hurt anything. really surprised they haven't tried to oversaturate with Muppets. I mean, yeah. that, that's Disney's shtick. They, if they, they find exploit. something that works, they exploit and they exploit. They, all they have is milking stools that they sit on and yeah. they put it next to whatever property they have and they just milk until the animal dies. Disney was really gung-ho about the Muppets. Well, first off, Disney has had like this on-and-off relationship with the Muppets. Well, like They had Disney, them for a while in the 90s and then they didn't Disney again. Disney bought then... the Muppets in the 80s, but they only bought like the distribution rights. So I think they had limited rights to the Muppets. I think the Muppet movies made in the '90s were distributed by Disney, but made by a different production company. I, I don't know. Uh, I'd have to look look up the actual details. I don't of know. This. The, the point is, Disney finally like outright acquired the Muppets mm. around I think shortly before they did the Muppets with Jason Segel. Yeah. Um, and they the Muppets was a big hit, won an Academy Award, and then, you know what? It's a really good movie. Uh, they made a sequel, uh, Muppets Most Wanted. It's okay. I rewatched it not that long ago. It's it's mostly funny, um, it's shabbier than the last one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they were really gung ho about that Muppets sitcom, which was like a takeoff of The Office. Yeah, um, which, which, which failed miserably. Failed but... miserably, which is a shame because it actually found itself halfway through its first season. But by that point, everyone had already jumped ship. The second half of that Muppets Office show is genuinely good Muppets. Mm. It's a genuinely good Muppet show. Um, and now I just think they got a little gun shy. You know, they don't, they're not really ready to commit. And, uh, that's stupid. And I'm going to say this right now. I've said this, I've said this before. Hmm. I will keep saying it until I will this into existence. (laughs) Here's what Disney needs to do. 
Disney mm-hmm. owns ABC. ABC, the network, is home of the Oscars. The Muppets should host the Oscars. Everyone would tune in. Everyone would tune in. Doesn't matter if they don't care about the movies. They would always say that, like, oh, well, do the people even care about these movies this year? They care about Muppets. Hmm. Let them do Muppet stuff. Promise that every single major celebrity who comes on stage gets to do a bit with a Muppet. You will get the top flight clientele. You will get, like, Jack Nicholson will come back. <laughs> okay? Like, John Wayne will come back from the fucking dead. Okay? People will jump at this chance. Make it so, damn it. What the fuck? Anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> but thank you for that. That's a fun pitch. Hmm. And then we, we, again, more Muppets, please. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, one more. One more letter? One last okay. letter. Here's yeah. a letter from Ryan. Hello, Ryan. Um, hey, guys. Hope you're chilling. On your recent Hitchcock episode, okay. uh, Bibbs called Rear Window a perfect movie. I've heard this take from uh, people before. While I like Rear Window, I wanted to bring up something about the film that has always bugged me and has kept me from calling it perfect. Okay. I haven't heard this point made before, so it's possible I'm wrong, in which case, mm. uh, which case hopefully you can help me appreciate the movie better. Rear Window spoilers to follow. Okay, Uh, movies over 70 years old now, I think it's fine. Uh, Jimmy Stewart's character at the beginning is a vain, arrogant man, a traveling photographer and man of action. Because of his injury, he is bedridden and starts spying on his neighbors. In the process, he starts making callous assumptions about the people around him based only on his limited voyeurism. The people in his his life, particularly Grace Kelly, suffer from this narcissism. To me, every carefully laid domino seems to build to the same inevitable conclusion that Stewart is wrong. Mm. As a viewer, you want this, his character to stop spying, to look around at Grace Kelly and appreciate his life. You want him to learn his lesson, become less cocksure, etc., etc. This is the emotional arc. But because it's Hitchcock, we must have the murder, too. Stuart mm. can't be all wrong. Therefore, the obvious way to have your cake and eat it, too, is that there should indeed be a murder at the apartment complex, but Stuart should miss apprehends the killer's identity. Watching the first time, this outcome seemed inevitable and perfect. Instead, he's just right? The killer he guesses right away is the correct killer, and it, this isn't a huge anticlimax. Isn't this a huge anticlimax and a thematic betrayal? What lesson does the arrogant spying Jimmy Stewart learn other than how right and cool he is? Rear Window was the first first Hitchcock I walked, watched way back when, and having heard uh, it was a twisty, suspenseful film, the non-twist at the end disappointed me. To me, this makes Rear Window unsatisfying and imperfect Mm. what say you guys thanks for all the great podcasting and keep it up sincerely ryan okay ryan thank you so much uh for for writing in it's really great they actually have like a real meaningful conversation about a movie this old Mm. Uh, a lot of people don't get that opportunity so thank you very much for that and you bring up an interesting point Mm. rear window wants to have its cake and eat it too yeah. Rear Window wants to tell a story about paranoia, about the dangers of voyeurism, while still at the same time telling a story in which the voyeurism ends up being, well, accurate's not the right way to phrase it, but the, Jimmy Stewart is right. Mm. And there's something to that. Uh, Hitchcock was in the business of making thrillers. <laughs> That's what he did. He was making a thriller first, and a thoughtful character commentary, arguably second, I would say simultaneously. Um, but it needed to have thrills. Hmm. Uh, in order for that to be the case, 
you need to ha- I, I, one could argue that maybe he was wrong and he misinterpreted the murder and there was a different way the murder could have taken place and that maybe that would have been effective i would argue that every single person that james stewart looks at in his rear window mm-hmm. is in some way reflective of his own life and i would argue that lars torvald is that too and i think he is afraid that that he's not capable of commitment and that he will end up destroying grace kelly Hmm. and i think that by having lars torvald embody that nightmare for him and having him be someone who james stewart can overcome james stewart is able to defeat a part of him that was incapable of being a partner in a relationship Whereas if it was just about how he was wrong to be a voyeur, that would be fair, but a little pat. And I don't Um, think he would grow in the same way. So for me, that's how it works. But I do see your point. um, I don't know. I mean, Hitchcock was himself a voyeur. He he, uh, very much used the camera the way a voyeur uses a camera. So it's entirely possible that he's doesn't see the voyeurism as being too bad a crime, Mm -hmm. that it's not something uh, Jimmy Stewart needs to learn a lesson about. It's Mm -hmm. just something he does. And I think Hitchcock is presenting this as a common activity of, of humanity rather than a violation of privacy. In a lot of Hitchcock movies, a, an obsession with something a little creepy Hmm. Uh, is not necessarily considered a great vice. A lot of people yeah, in his yeah. movies are interested in, in the academic idea of murder. Mm. Uh, a lot of people are interested; they get excited about murder, right. uh, but they but when it's actually in front of them, they have a different attitude about it because it's one thing to think about it, and it's another thing to actually fucking do it or be in con- confronted by someone who does kill mm. on the reg. Uh, so I think Vertigo. It's not Vertigo. I said Vertigo. I think Rear Window. Is is both things. I think it enjoys yeah, the titillation of voyeurism because that's the whole premise of the movie. It's what brought you into the theater, right? But it's also a little judgy of it because it knows that it's not a healthy activity, and yeah, in the end, he does stop doing it, doesn't he? I, I think. But Hitchcock is presenting the voyeurism as something the audience is supposed to be getting a lascivious thrill out of. Yeah, we're supposed not, to relate to the voyeurism. Not, not, yeah, exactly. We're not supposed yeah. to be sort of shying away from it or judging it. Also. Mm-hmm. I, I don't take it from it sort of the way he's alienating Grace Kelly, although that's definitely a part of it. I think mm. it's a kind of a Boy Who Cried Wolf story. Yeah, yeah, it's about yeah. a, a fellow who's always looking for a sensational story, and he said he's seen something interesting so many times that it adds to the thrill when he actually does see something. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's a pretty basic sort of fable-like setup, but I think it functions on that level. Yeah, and mm. I think, and again, I think the film very masterfully handles the idea of we see what James Stewart sees. It's an incomplete picture, mm. but when we see it the way he sees it, in the context that he sees it, it seems pretty convincing. Mm. It looks bad, but every time he tries to tell anybody without actually showing them what he saw, uh-huh. it doesn't sound as good. It's like the difference between telling someone the plot of a movie and showing them the movie. Right. right. You know, it's like you're, you, you can get the gist of it, but you're not going to get the sensation of it, mm. and you're not going to get the same takeaway. And I think on that level, it's about something that's a little bit more about storytelling uh, than anything else. So, um, again, I see your point. And I feel like on some level, one could say that it's dangerous to... Well, dangerous is an exaggeration. It's not necessarily the best critical perspective to think about what a movie could have been. 
Yeah. Uh, however, if you're thinking about what a movie could have been, it's, there's a decent chance that what it is isn't engaging to you. Uh, and uh, it sounds like you've figured out why. It's because you mm. feel like it doesn't necessarily satisfyingly wrap up its story. I would argue its story is maybe a little different than the one that you're interpreting it as. Mm. But both interpretations are valid. And I think that's fair. Um, and of course, when I call anything a perfect movie, I realize that that's like... There's an argumentative side in all of us that wants to go, hey, wait a minute. I found a flaw in that. Hmm. Fair. That's I do that too. Um, but to me, it's perfect. And okay. there aren't a lot of movies that I would give that label. So when I say Rear Window is perfect, what I am saying is that this movie gets my highest possible recommendation. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, uh, and I think the fact that we can have these complicated conversations mm. about it actually speaks to the complexity of Rear Window rather than necessarily its failings. Um, however, again, I see your point. Mm. If, if that's your takeaway, cool. I get it. I, yeah. I can't really argue with that. I can just, I can just share my own different take. Yeah. Um, the, the idea of like the perfect movie, the movie that has no flaws. Yeah. Why? Why do we have to give, give some sort of rarefied appellation to a single film? Well, if I'm impressed oh. enough that mm. when I watch a movie, I really can't think of anything. Like, because you can watch, we can watch any movie and go like, "Oh, this movie's amazing," but mm. okay, the visual effect wasn't very good. You know, like something. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, always, there's gonna be something you can, you can pick apart if if, if you're yeah. looking for it. So, but I'm a critic. I'm always yeah. looking. So if I can't find something, I mm. tend to be extra impressed. Okay. So there's a handful of movies out there where I'm like, I just can't think of a way to improve that. <laughs> I can't think of anything that they do wrong per se. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah, yeah that, that's all I mean. Yeah. I'm not trying to like elevate when, anything when I I'm hear, just talking uh, about. To me, I see this movie and I'm like, I can think of no meaningful criticism of this. This is yeah, this yeah, is just this movie just does what it needs to do. To, like my neighbor Totoro, I can't think of a meaningful yeah. criticism of that movie. Yeah. It's just oh, pure well, I mean, brain. Totoro clearly needed to eat those kids, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a big flaw in that movie. Yeah, of course, uh, I apologize. <laughs> no, when when people say uh, this movie is perfect, that that get like makes me cock an eyebrow a little mm. bit because clearly they are saying that's another way of saying this film is above reproach, which is another way of saying this film is above criticism. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, and that that of course you know gets me asshole contrarian that I am sort of in, mm. in my devil's advocate chair saying, wait a minute here. Well, Where is the flaw? Let me, let me now, I'm, mm -hmm. now I have to start going through it with a nitpicker sure. and trying to find the, the nits on it. It's fur. No movie is above criticism. Mm. No movie is above criticism. Even rear window. We just had a perfectly valid criticism of it. Uh, but at the end of the day, I've never, I've never read a criticism of rear window that made me go, Okay, yeah, you're right. It does mm. suck. Like I'm always, I'm, I'm always still like at the end of the day. Like I see your point. I personally take away something else on this one on this mm. particular film, but eh, you know, there's there's something out there for everybody. Um, and not every not everyone's gonna get the same mileage out of every film. That's just the end all be all of it. Sometimes it's about personal experience. Sometimes it's about your value system. What you judge, what you value artistically, philosophically, politically, whatever. Mm. Um. No, there aren't a lot of people who are going to have like the same list of perfect films, if even such a list exists. Yeah. So uh, again, when I say perfect, I feel free to take it as a challenge if you want. That's that's your prerogative. Knock yourself out. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I really mean to say is that I see this movie and I can't think of anything meaningfully negative to say about it. Okay. And I I can't say that about a lot of movies. Some of my favorite movies ever made. Yeah, they got plenty of flaws. Mm. They got plenty of things that don't work. Plot points that don't work. Visual effects that don't work. Performances that are not the best. Mm. Something. 
isn't great about it. I can't think of that for word window, <laughs> so that's fine. That's fine. Mm. All right, that's on it. Uh, but thank you for writing in. Yeah. Thank yeah, you for sure. writing in. And seriously, always always take us to task. By God, do not let us get oh, big yeah. heads. Do not let us get big heads. Um, but anyway, thank you so much for, for you and everyone else who wrote in. Uh, if we didn't get your email this week, we're sorry. Uh, we never have time to catch up on everything, but we love getting your emails. It means a lot to us to get your emails. Uh, we might read it next time. Feel free to send it again. If it's if you want to send us something that's like time sensitive for any particular reason, feel free to reach out to Whitney on mm-hmm. social media and just tell him to make a yeah, note of it. Say, hey, you didn't read my letter yet. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, like because we've had some people, bit, it's yeah. like, hey, this is time to the release of a thing, yeah, or yeah. you know, it's for someone's birthday or whatever, like that. Whatever. Just if there's something like that, please let us know mm. so that we don't miss it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but generally speaking, we just do our best. Uh, mm-hmm. But in any case, if you want to write into a future episode of We've Got Mail. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? People who prefer to write in somehow. Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep. We're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want other bonus shows from Critically Acclaimed, you can head on over to our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Critically acclaimed network. You can vote for future episodes. We have exclusive shows about Batman, Star Trek, the Academy Awards, uh, tons of stuff over there at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Thank you to all of our patrons without whom none of our shows would exist. They would all be gone. Um, so we just cannot thank you enough. And if you can't afford to subscribe on our Patreon, please subscribe just in general. Uh, tell a friend, leave us a review if you can. It really, really helps. Uh, head on over to our soap store, me and M. Lapis da Silva. We run a soap store called Salt Cat Soap. It's on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Salt Cat Soap. Mm-hmm. And it's on Etsy. You can find the link on our social media. Uh, but yeah, we sell uh, and uh, craft designer soaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we're doing a big push. We got a lot of new cool stuff coming out for the holidays. We got a lot of Halloween soaps currently in the store. We're going to be making another batch of our glow in the dark ghost soaps, which we cannot, which we cannot keep in stock which is really great thank you everybody who's bought them uh and uh but we'll also be doing stuff for you know the winter season as well christmas and other related activities because not not all christmas but you know seasonal um and uh yeah so thank you very much for that please check that out if you haven't already it'd be nice you don't have to Mm -hmm. i get it um and um i think that's it that's it good okay great uh so thank you everybody once again have a great week sincerely yours Bibbs and Whitney.